0: Hi there, everybody. Welcome to the Cloud Base Mayhem. Had a great show for you today with someone you'll all recognize, the great Johnny Duran, Red Bull hang glider pilot, many time world number one, and someone I've been trying to get on the show for an awfully long time, and the connection finally came through Nick Nanans, my friend at the X-Alps, and uh, he put us together, and Johnny's been on pretty stiff lockdown down in Australia for the last year and a half now. I hadn't been able to travel, so, he was psyched to get on the phone and have a conversation. And we had a lot of fun with this. We talked about his many years of competing his recent foray into paragliding and the differences there and uh, chasing the, the morning glory. I'm sure most, if not all of you have seen that footage, it's absolutely incredible. If you haven't check it out in the show notes, Uh, big film project he did with Red Bull years back and just unbelievable. And, His distance chasing, trying to chase the world record in Texas and in other places. But he and Dustin, of course, were together on the fateful day back in 2012. And Dustin just eked him out at the end to go 761K. And with Sebastian's recent records there, uh, Texas is certainly back on the map. People are interested. So we talk a lot about Texas and a lot about just flying, gliding, thermaling, techniques, I think you're gonna enjoy it. I had a real blast with this. So enjoy this talk with the great Johnny Duran. Johnny, uh good to see you in the in my viewfinder here, man. This is I've been reading about you the last couple of days. And uh most of the stuff out there I already kind of knew. I've been following your career for a long time. And you know, one of the things it did was suck me right back into that morning glory stuff you were doing a while back. It's just We've got to hear about that, but um, first, tell me where you are and, and what you've been up to lately. I, I, uh, since your world record attempts, it's been a little quieter than usual, so I, I just want to kind of get caught up.
1: Yeah, well, uh, thanks for having me on. I'm currently uh, stuck at home uh, in Australia, uh, in Gold Coast. Uh, it's, uh, it's the first time I've been uh, in Australia for more than 12 months at a time, I think. so. That's uh right. it's been a bit of a challenge or a bit of a change, I should say. Uh but uh no, it's it's going well. Um yeah, it's uh not a lot of flying's been happening in the competition side, so it's uh given me time to to do other things.
0: Yeah, I understand from Nick who was the one the connection here, Nick Nainans, uh my, my ex Alps buddy that you're getting into paragliding. Can we talk about that or is that all hush-hush?
1: Yeah, yeah, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I thought um since there wasn't much hang gliding going on, I would uh try out the dark side as they say. Um, sure. Now we have a, you know, we have a very strong club here in Canungra. Uh, we have 200 members. Uh the biggest club in Australia and when I started flying 20 years ago, it was uh, 90 90 odd percent uh, hang gliding and 10 percent paragliding and uh 20 years later it's uh 90 something percent paragliders and 10 percent hang gliders so you know the times have have changed a bit uh as far as what people are flying and um yeah it's just i i you know i've done so many flights and i know the i guess the whole area as i call it my backyard here um and for me to go out and go flying on the hang glider by myself just, you know, it doesn't really do it for me right now. So, uh, you know, I, I've always enjoyed, you know, obviously traveling the world, competing with my friends and, and then coming home and, and flying uh, with my other friends here and, you know, just having a nice fly with, with them. And But to, to go out there and be flying my hang glider by myself and, uh, you know, seeing the paragliders as you fly past them it just doesn't really do it so i thought well i guess i'll try try the paragliding and uh see what happens you know and yeah i kind of kind of met up with uh felipe uh that makes the flow paragliders and you know he's based here on the gold coast and he he told me he was a hang glider pilot back in the day in brazil and uh I was like, oh I said, Well maybe I'll have to get you on the hang glider. He goes, Well then you gotta fly a paraglider. So we kinda ah. had this thing about a year or so ago and I, I said, Well, I'll try one if you uh, you know, if you try the hang glider. I've yet to get him in the hang glider, mind you. <laughs> so yeah, I, I had a few flights last year, uh on the paraglider. Just flying on the the A Wing and uh through the winter time I thought, Well that'd be a good time, you know, and I just thought, Wow, I do it when when the thermals aren't so strong, and uh, the you know the glider stays above my head most of the time, um, which it did, so I was grateful for that. And then uh, I was flying with Felipe one day, and we had uh, we both landed together in a field uh, almost simultaneously, and we were trying to sort of do a low save, both of us, and we sort of I shouldn't say landed, but we both arrived, and uh, <laughs> we were both laying on the ground complaining of uh, knee injuries, and um, yeah, I. I had a fully blown torn ACL, so I oh, uh, wow. yeah, it was had to get uh, surgery and um, sort of didn't fly for six to nine months last year. Um, from uh, a little, you,
0: so just just a hard landing.
1: You know, it wasn't even that hard. I I, I can't really blame it on paragliding. Um, I originally injured my knees motocross um, many years ago. I had the right one fixed after multiple injuries um or multiple hard landings I should say and then the left one's been the weak one ever since then and uh yeah it was just a a field that had long grass and uh was mowing and I thought I was on the ground but I just sunk an extra couple inches and just sort of hyperextended my leg yeah. and uh I yeah. think it was you know it was just a straw that broke the camel's back really and it was kind of kind of good timing when it happened because it was sort of during COVID and um wasn't much else going on for me so I was lucky that I was able to get straight in and, and get it fixed um but yeah spent a few months on crutches and uh yeah sort of been a long road to recovery and um I've only done two hang gliding comps since my uh, since I did my knee and I was just flying an intermediate glider and in both those comps um just because I was afraid of the landings and things like that with it still so um yeah just sort of slowly getting back into it and now it's, it's getting better again. I thought I'd start paragliding again just to uh, have a bit more fun. And, yeah, slowly uh, stepping up in the books and on the gliders that I'm flying. But uh, I don't know. They still scare me.
0: <laughs> I was going to say, can you break down for us kind of the main – you know, the sensations at what's different, what's, what's scarier, what's mellower, if anything, you know, we always talk, you know, there's always the two groups, you know, the hang gliders. Oh yeah, but your thing collapses. And we're always yeah, but your things go really fast. You know, and it's, it's, it's trickier to land when you're going so fast. What, what were, the, what are the kind of the main, what, what were the biggest maybe surprises and maybe some of the things that were just, Oh yeah, that may kind of make sense. What are the big changes?
1: Well, I think uh, for me, the, the biggest difference is how slow they are. Also, just getting used to the glide on them. Uh, you, you hit that sink, and it just feels like you're going straight down. You know, <laughs> even when you put full speed bar on, it just feels like you're going down faster. So it's
0: right. It's not exactly like pulling in. Uh, it's it? not like pulling
1: the bar <laughs> and, and just getting through the sink and um, getting to that next climb. So uh, you know, it, it's been a bit of a challenge uh, just trying to understand the fact that. The glide angle is so much worse and um you know the, the the thermals i think that i'm gonna get to i'm not actually getting to because they're too far away uh
0: so it's a real readjustment of of, of how you fly I guess.
1: yeah I, I think probably it's it's really helped me in the patient side of things um not all hang glider pilots are that patient so sort of flying a paraglider and Flying for four or five hours and doing 50, 60 kilometers, going, hmm. <laughs> you know, that's, uh, it's, I would have, I would have landed a long time ago on the hang glider if that was the case. Um, but <laughs> just because it's something different, you know, it, it keeps me going. And, you know, I've obviously been competing for a long time now in the hang gliding side. And it's uh, sort of what keeps me going when it comes to flying, um, having, having a goal and trying to achieve it every time I go flying. Uh, so for me to be flying these gliders that are in the the lower class against a lot of the top guys here on their racing machines um and trying to to keep up with them and it's uh just sets me a good challenge i guess and uh, I, i've just kind of been enjoying that side of it uh, lately and i've been doing quite well apparently they they don't, they don't really want me to step up anymore on these gliders because <laughs> they're afraid of what's going to happen.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. You'll be kicking their ass soon. <laughs> Is there, it, it, do you, um, it, it, are there any things that you've learned from hang gliding that are not good that. That you've brought into paragliding? Like, like if you talked about that you're you're the one leaning too far forward now because you want to be prone <laughs> like Prentice, But but uh are there are there things, you know, like for example, I have always found hang gliders to be really good at gliding, especially when they come over to paragliding. They've learned something there about the air that um a sensitivity to the air that I think you know the really, really good gliders, uh, paragliders have a sense for, but seems more Instinctual, or I don't know, maybe it's something that's just the years, but uh, I, I have noticed that that it seems like hang gliders have this sense for the line that we often don't. Is there anything in reverse of that? I mean, I, I, mean, I, I think don't know that's if you a, agree with
1: that, but that's a great point that you're touching on there. Um, I think when you're hang gliding, you're a little bit more connected to the wing, um, being that you're holding onto the bar it's kind of like a natural extension of your arms. Hmm. Whereas paragliding, you're kind of just this little pendulum flying below this thing and you don't get that instant, well, I shouldn't say you don't get that instant feel of what's happening with the air because <laughs> you kind of do sometimes with paragliding. <laughs> some you get
0: too much, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um,
1: but I think you're feeling the air a lot more uh especially if you 're a relaxed hang glider pilot um because you you're kind of feeling the feedback of the glider a lot um which might be the case with paragliding maybe i 'm just not there yet, holding on too tight um <laughs> but <laughs> yeah I think probably the first thing that hang glider pilots do with they paraglide is hold the rises uh I know i'm guilty of that a lot sure. um i'm trying to trying to be more relaxed and uh just hold the brakes um, and don't grab the risers when things get scary. Uh, but that's kind mm. of the first instinct is you want to just grab something. And I know it's against all what you should do, but uh, it's still something that uh, happens even, even for me right now. So yeah, but that is an
0: interesting point that you've got. You've got the I'm, when I had Jeff Shapiro on, he always t- talks about you know wingsuiting. Is is truly the only form of aviation where you're flying. You're not flying something. You, you know you are the bird. Um, and I guess if we kind of stack things up, that is the progression, isn't it? It's wingsuits, and then it would be hang gliders because you're you really are connected through that bar, and you're almost flying <laughs> you're, you're you know you're still flying something but you're very close to a bird you're prone you're you've got this incredible command of the of the wing and then then you go into paragliding which is a big step away from that so yeah you, i can see that that connection must be what must be great to get a sense for the air
1: yeah i mean they they, they say superman doesn't fly sitting down <laughs> <laughs> It's true. Laying down and 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 flying that way is probably the next closest thing to, um, as Jeff says, um, you know, wingsuiting. Obviously, that's uh, you know, I've had chats with him about that, and you know, he he obviously loves it. Says it's the closest thing that you get to flying. And I mean, I couldn't argue with that. I've never done it, but uh, yeah. certainly you you know, it's just you with a little bit, couple little bits of material under your arms, so you definitely are flying mm. or falling, whatever it is. Mm um <laughs> Some comment. but yeah i think uh you know obviously it's the hang gliding and paragliding is is quite different and and the fact of you know laying down and sitting down and uh, i find it interesting that uh when i get low um i find i want to sit forward in the harness a lot more probably because i'm so used to looking at the ground sources for thermals uh and trying to just figure out where i want to go for those last thousand feet of my glide and when i'm in the paraglider leaning back in the pod, i'm kind of have troubles you know a lot of the times where you want to go is right where your feet are so i'll find that i'll actually mm-hmm. sit forward a little bit and and kind of see what's down in front of me to you know figure out which which part of the ground i want to cover the to to get my last climb or to stay up um whereas hang gliding uh, you're always kind of looking at the ground unless you're looking up. So it's uh, a little bit different than that. But just going back on the, the the gliding part, one thing I have noticed, especially flying, you know, I've done a lot of my flying on the ENA wing, on the the Flow Future, and uh, obviously, you know, when I first started flying at the it like, those things aren't even made to go cross-country. They're just a training glider, you know, and I was doing 50-kilometer flights from, you know, from our local site when no one else was getting up they're all just bombing out and he's like dude that's just not made to happen you know so i was like yeah but it's you know it's still a glider it flies it's just really slow you know you just got to take your time and <laughs> you got to scratch <laughs> um and then now i've stepped up into the uh, the freedom two uh so that's his high-end B glider and i You know, I'm finding that it's performing really well and that I'm flying a lot with the the C-wings and the D-wings and even some of the guys on the two-lining comp gliders and tailwind or a little bit tailwind, I'm finding that if I pick the right line, um, I'm actually being able to stay with them all day long uh, just by picking that slightly better line. Uh, Obviously, you know, the, the sink... Factors a lot more on the glide on a paraglider, just because you're in it so long. Um, so if you can pick that better line, uh, you know, I'm finding that I'm able to to keep up quite well on on the lower performing wing, just you know, just by not losing all that height on glide. So it's sort of frustrating a lot of guys around here um, with that. But you know, there is something in it. You know, like you said, a lot of hang glider pilots have. Good lines, and that may be just from the amount of ground that we cover, the amount of experience we've got um, in picking lines. Um, you know, knowing when when it's time to race or when it's time to slow down, and and things like that. And I, I find that if I'm leaving, you know, I might leave climbs early in the paraglider, and because I can see that there's better stuff in front of me, or I'm going to go up for the next couple of kilometers under a cloud, or things like that. That really, you know, seem to really help and and racing on the lower performing wings. So, yeah, there's there's definitely, you know, I think anyone with thousands of hours in the air is going to be pretty good at picking lines and, and knowing where the next animal is, regardless of what, you know, what, what you've done your hours on, really.
0: Gliding is one of those things, Johnny, that, you know, when you talk to really good pilots like yourself, it it tends to be, one of those questions that gets that yeah, it's just hours. It's just feel, you know. It's it's kind of this Jedi thing, isn't it? You know, it's you know you're using the force a bit. um But can you give any concrete things that our listeners can latch onto in terms of you know how to feel out a good line, how to how to approach gliding? You mentioned a couple of things there. You know, hey, if if I'm in a climb and I know it's better down the line leave, go. But, and these are a lot of things you learn obviously in racing, but, um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on gliding is one that you can talk about thermaling and technique and falling out and the windward side. And, and you know, there, there's real concrete things we can talk about there, but gliding is one of these where it's tricky. That was, a, that was a very hard chapter to write in the
1: book. <laughs> I can't imagine. I mean, it's, You know, everyone asks questions about, oh, what should I have done different today? You know, I was here and I did this and I did that, and I'm like, well, you know, the the beautiful thing about flying is is every day is different and every situation is different. So to try and tell somebody what they did right or what they did wrong on any given day is extremely hard unless you're flying right next to them. Mm. So to, like you said, to try and explain to someone how to glide better or how to pick the right lines is you know it's extremely difficult uh, because you can never paint the same picture twice so it it really does just come down to to knowledge um, and I think probably you know there's a few things that i I like like to think that I'm good at and one of them is awareness um, that's probably my biggest attribute to flying and my eyesight so being able to to see things and understand or Seeing the situations where you know you might be in a thermal climbing with three people, and all of a sudden you see an eagle or a hawk or something, a couple kilometres away low, that's climbing much better, and you take off, you know, thirty degrees to course line, and people go, well, "Where's Johnny going? I don't know what he's doing." And you know, two minutes later, I've I've hit the strong climb, and they're like, "Oh, it's over there," Um and then you're gone, <laughs> you know, um, or. Yeah. Or the fact that um, you do, you do see the sky changing in front of you, and you can see that if you leave the thermal now, you're gonna, you're gonna have a good line, and you're gonna get to a better climb. Um, you might be low, but if you're confident that you're gonna get that better climb, um, you know, you go, and that's sort of the way to get away from, from the gaggle. Um, obviously, with the paragliding, it's a little bit different, just because it's you don't really. Disappear that fast, Um, and if you do leave and you pick a pick the wrong line, then you know you can certainly be scratching at at treetops while the others go over the top of you, Uh, which you know can happen in hang gliding too. But it's it certainly seems a little bit more likely to happen in the paragliding. For me, being aware of your surroundings, it's not something that you just need to practice while you're flying. Um, It's You know, it's good to practice when you're in a car driving to work um, all day long, you know, trying to just look around and just go, how many people are in my area? Is it five? Is it 10? Whatever it might be. It's great for when you're in big comps with lots of gliders and you just go, okay, there's 10 people in this gaggle. And if I can't see all 10 of them on every circle, I'm missing someone, you know? So just going, well, did that someone go somewhere? If so, where did he go? Why did he leave? Did he see something better? You know, hang gliders kind of disappear a lot easier than paragliders do. The paragliders are very bright and colourful and made like the back in the seventies. You know, um, <laughs> hang gliders <laughs> are stealthy and dark, and we like to disappear from <laughs> our opponents. Uh, so you kind of got to be a lot more onto it, especially in, in the competition side of hang gliding, with knowing where your competitors are and and um, where they might have gone and things like that. So, for me, I like to keep an eye on everybody and everything all the time. The other day, I was said to somebody, "Oh, you you did this and you did that," and they're like, "But I didn't see you anywhere. How did you know what I did?" I'm like, "Well, because I keep eyes on everybody. Like you were five k's behind me, but I still saw where you were and you know what happened to you." Oh, really? So, you know, it's that's <laughs> probably just something that I've you know, think is very important part of flying because there's too many people I see, especially the up and coming pilots that, um, you know, they're just quite satisfied with staying in the air and they're in, they're in a one or two meter climb and they don't want to leave it or they don't, you know, they're they're not worried about looking for someone else that might be in that slightly better climb that they can get to.
0: Johnny, are you also, when you're, when you're flying comps, are you mapping who is who or just, what everybody's doing are you paying attention to which pilot is are you paying attention to the names you know okay are you in other words do you put more weight into certain people
1: oh certainly i mean you got to know i know absolutely everybody in the competition what glider they're flying what they look like um and that's something i do on the ground i just walk around it's a little bit harder with paragliding because you things are all bundled up on the ground and uh, hand gliding's is a lot easier you know they're out there they're on the hill advertisement you can see what color people have the harnesses are hooked into their gliders you can see their helmets you can but generally you know i mean i i, I can tell even when i can't see someone's colors just by their flying style how much they bank up in thermals and and things like that i can just go oh that's dustin over there or there's so and so i like to keep a very close eye on my opponent's I know exactly who everyone is. You know, obviously, you know, I, I can't give away too many secrets here, you know, but uh, it's um, uh, not every day is suited for, for your own personal flying skills or, you know, it might be a blue day and you might go, well, I'm not that great flying in the blue. But who here in the competition do you think is the person that's going to excel today? And I might go, okay, well, it's probably between these three people that have a good chance of winning the day today. So I'm going to keep very good eyes on those few people and, you know, just go, well, it mightn't be my day, but I'm going to try and stick with the people that I think is going to do well today. And, you know, that might be my game plan for the day. Uh, Days where I think, well, it's my day, I certainly know there's other people that are watching me. And I try to do everything I can to get away from those people because, you know, you're just going to drag them on the goal all day and you don't really want to do that. So if you're going to be the one finding all the thermals, you might as well try to disappear and find them for yourself and not for others, you know. So, yeah, it's, Mm. you know, it's obviously a lot of tactics when you talk about competition flying. But
0: Well, let's come back to that potentially because I'd I'd love to talk more comps with you and I know that's something you've been doing for a long time. But uh, I'd love to get the kind of resume bullet point version of – how you got into this and then bring us up to now you should have been flying for 20 years, but how'd you start? What, what started all the craziness and then, you know, kind of, I'd love for you to just touch on some of the highlights or the, some of the springboards that, that bounced you to where you are now.
1: Well, I, um, sort of got into the sport through my father. He, um, uh, actually, is from the states my parents are both from the from the u.s Uh, i grew up in california and he saw hang gliding back over there in the 70s and uh you know was really interested in it but uh didn't really get into it they decided to move to australia my dad was a very keen very active surfer and uh heard the surf was good here so they they basically moved to australia then uh, I was born here, and about five years, about uh, five years later, a little while later, they, well, actually, they moved to uh, when they first got here, they moved to the mountains uh, behind the Gold Coast, um, bought a property, and uh, my mom went for a drive one day and, and came back and said to my dad, "You'll never believe what they're doing just up the road." He said, "What?" She said, "They're hang gliding." It's like no way, so. It took him a while, but uh, I think when I was um, about nine, he learned to fly. He got lessons, and uh, the first time he got lessons, he broke his arm, so he gave it away for a couple of years, and then uh, he went back and did it again, and, um, yeah, so he started flying. Uh, When I was quite young, I uh, did a tandem flight and kind of got pretty hooked from my first tandem flight, I guess. Uh I kinda grew up surfing and skateboarding and it got to the point where it was starting to get quite quite crowded surfing and we'd drive an hour down the beach to go surfing and get a few waves and I don't know, once I uh once I started flying I realised that once you jumped off that mountain you were free, you know, you could do whatever you wanted and it was just all down the skill and the more skill you had, the the better the flight you had, you know. So you weren't hassling for waves and things like that and you know kind of just got me hooked um so i used to travel around with him he actually went uh six months after he learned to hang glide he took the whole family back over to the states and we traveled around the states for six months and uh he went straight to the owens valley because he's like well i hear that's the best place to fly wow. so he did a month in the owens valley uh fresh off the boat and yeah he put himself in that's
0: that's a quick education
1: he gave himself a very quick (laughs) education on hypoxia and all that fun stuff so um yeah but yeah i was uh you know obviously not flying then i was only nine or ten years old so yeah i used to just travel around with him to the comps and uh, every year i'd try to pick up a hang glider and couldn't get the a-frame off the ground so he'd be like oh maybe next year and yeah, eventually uh, <laughs> I got uh, big enough to get the A-frame off the ground. He said, all right, you can start start learning now. And, um, you know, I'd obviously had runs down training hills and things like that with people holding on to me. And uh, my parents went away for the weekend, uh, dropped me off at uh, a friend's house who was an instructor and said, oh, well, you're going to start doing your lessons this weekend. And they came home Sunday night and I already jumped off the mountain. Uh, <laughs> it was a pretty fast lesson and uh, <laughs> they couldn't believe that, uh, that you know, I was only 14. Uh, <laughs> the instructor already thrown me off the hill, uh, but, uh, you know, uh, the great thing was I got the next day off uh, from <laughs> school on Monday just to show my dad that I could actually fly. So, um, yeah, I was pretty fortunate that uh, we had a huge, you know, strong club of hang glider pilots here in Canungra and um, you know, we had a lot of Australia's best at the time uh lived here and, and flew our local sites. So I, I had some great, you know, great pilots to learn from and um watch and listen to and I was like a sponge. I just sucked up all the information I could from everyone and obviously being around the sport for five years or so before I learned to fly, i had already soaked up a lot of information and um, had a pretty fast learning curve, and probably I think I started competing a year after I started flying. So,
0: whoa! It's this like late nineties, early two thousands.
1: Uh Ninety five, I learned.
0: Ninety five. Okay. Yeah.
1: So that's yeah. so, it. So, yeah, just went on twenty six years. Um, a couple of weeks ago.
0: Yeah. So I mean, paragliding was was kind of a thing then. You know, mid nineties was getting to be. Bigger and bigger, you know. Certainly, then you know, hang gliding was still by far bigger, but it was kind of starting to do this. You know, the crossing um, was that ever of interest to you back then, or was it just because this year was with COVID? Is it is it been of interest? Is it has just been hang gliding that whole time.
1: I have. I um, I actually did learn to paraglide. I kind of taught myself to paraglide back in the early uh, early days, uh, probably late nineties, I guess. I used to have an off-road skateboard that I built at school and uh, I bought an Adele space um, Ah. from the nineties. I think in 93, 94, something like that. Pretty old glider, but I mostly used to use it um, just as a kite. So I was kind of like kite boarding, I guess, with my off-road skateboard. So I learned the (laughs) the grand handling aspect of paragliding and um, we had a, only one instructor in the paragliding back then, uh, Phil Heistick here in Kanunga, and he was sort of the only paraglider um, and was sort of teaching and getting people into it. So I used to kind of go out there and sort of ground groundhand a little bit with him and um, have a little bit of fun on my skateboard and things like that mm-hmm. when he was teaching students. And then a few years later I decided I'd actually get my license and um, he kind of just threw me off the hill because he's seen that I'd kind of done some ground handling and kind of knew what was going on and obviously flying hang gliders he figured i had some idea and did a few early morning flights and um yeah kind of got my got my rating so to speak back then um but never really pursued it um and then after i won um new south wales state titles down at manila uh godfrey convinced me to stay uh for the next week to fly the pre-PWC or something, pre-pre-PWC comp uh, before the Worlds, I think it was 2004 or 2005, um, comp I did mm-hmm. down there in Manila. And he said, I want to put you in as a wildcard entry um, and I'll give you a glider and harness and everything you need to fly the comp. And I was like, mm, okay, <laughs> it's 130 pilots. And I literally probably had five <laughs> hours in a paraglider uh, <laughs> over about two years, um, and I hadn't flown one for about a year, so I basically was an absolute beginner. And he gave me a Sigma-5 to fly, and I was like, you sure I'm going to survive? He's like, yeah, you'll be fine. I was like, yeah. <laughs> So So, um, yeah, I jumped off the hill the first day, and there was literally 100 pilots plus ridge soaring the western side of Mount Bora, and uh, I flew straight out and landed the bomb out and just went, Oh, well, I don't know about this. <laughs> <laughs> that was my first flight new glider everything was all new and there there's people everywhere i didn't even want to turn the thing uh um, <laughs> i went back up and uh yeah uh, took off for a second time and there was about six or seven other pilots that had bombed out with me and they kind of knew who i was from the hang gliding side of things and uh, they just thought we're just going to follow johnny and I think uh five of them plus me made goal. We were the last ones to get the goal that day. Um but we got there. What? <laughs> um, ah that's awesome. But yeah, I kinda had a bit of an entourage following me around the skies there. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I mean I did all right. I think I placed in the top forty. Wow. That's impressive. From man. memory, it's a while ago now, but uh it was, it was a big learning curve just, you know, a lot of days I hit the deck just because I hadn't figured out the difference in the glide performance yet and I'd leave a thermal halfway to base because I saw a cloud form in front thinking, "Ah, oh, that's a better climb and I'd find out that five minutes later I was on the ground, two k's from where the thermal was still going, oh, huh, well, that didn't work. <laughs> um, and, yeah, I was getting a lot of collapses and things like that and it just – it seemed at that time, you know, the gliders that the top guys were flying were quite dangerous. Still, in fact, that they were collapsing a lot, and there was a lot of injuries and things like that. And being, you know, I think I'd sort of just become world number one at hang gliding at, at that time. Um, and and seeing the fact that if I wanted to be good at paragliding, I needed to fly something pretty dangerous. Um, didn't really interest me that much, so sure. I pretty much. Stop paragliding i i did that one comp i actually did a little bit more when i i got back home uh to canungra just because i'd been so into breaking the the distance record and the hang glider from our sides and i was up around the 300 kilometer mark back then i think or a little more and the paragliding record was about 110 or 120 kilometers and i was like yeah it's not that hard to fly that far i did 100 miles in the competition at Manila on on that glider. And I was like, it's easy doable for me to break the record here. And so I had a few attempts at that, but we got this great dividing mountain range to get across and it's um it's quite challenging. Uh, there's only a few places you can cross it and there's a lot of trees and high mountains. And uh, I got there a couple of times on the paraglider and never never managed to venture over it. Um, <laughs> so I kind of just thought, uh, yeah. Yeah, maybe there's a reason why the record's where it stands with the paragliders and sort of, yeah, just gave it up basically and literally had had a couple of flights here and there, coastal flights over, you know, since 2005 uh, up until recently. Yeah, mm. but yeah, it was sort of just mainly just focused on hang gliding and trying to be the best in the world at hang gliding.
0: Yeah, I took you, I took you way off route there. I'm sorry, but you were, you said you, you were only fine a year and then you got into comps. Let's, let's pick back up with your, your history because, uh, and I I really want to get to the Dustin's chasing it with Dustin (laughs) in Texas and talk about Texas because we've had some Texas, uh, uh, news lately. So we'll get to that, but yeah, t- take me up through the two thousands. then. so you started, you started flying comps pretty quick and.
1: Yeah. So I started, I think 96 out. was my first comp in Australia. So yeah, I basically just started doing the comp scene here in Australia. When I was young, I had a skateboarding accident just before one of the seasons. Uh, the day I finished high school, actually, um, I broke and dislocated my shoulder. So that put me out of flying for the season. That was when we had the, the world champs here. Um, at Forbes, and I was sort of the goalkeeper back then. That was about all I could do. So I was there watching and uh, checking, watching everyone come across the goal line. And then, um, yeah, kind of just started competing, um, like I said, around Australia mostly. Uh, when I finished school, I did a little bit of traveling. Uh, I went My first international comp was over in Spain. Went over for the pre-world champs down in Algonanales in 2000. I flew the Spanish nationals, uh, which was my first comp just prior to the pre-worlds. Uh, I think there was 125 pilots, in it and I uh, managed to get third place behind world number one and world number four or something. So it was like, everyone classified me as the real winner because everyone knew those two were going to be first and second in some sort of order. Mm-hmm. So I was, you know, I think I was I was 19 then, and that was sort of my first uh, big international comp. Uh, or first international comp, so I was pretty stoked with that. And, uh, yeah, went on to to fly in the pre-worlds. And um, then um, I think it was 2001, 2002, I was uh, working in the film industry here on the Gold Coast and uh, got a phone call one day from Vicky at Moyes uh, Gliders and she said, we want to sponsor you to travel the world and hang glide. And I was like, right on. I'm like, (laughs) yes, please. I'm like, sounds good. I'm like, well, I'm currently working in the film industry, and uh, she goes, yeah. There's only one catch. You got to leave tomorrow. I'm like, oh, that's a fast one. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So, kind of, I went to my bosses directly after the phone call, I guess, and had a little sit down meeting with them, and and I said, listen, you know, this is a situation, and told them and they kind of looked at me and said, what are you still doing standing here? Um,
0: oh, wow,
1: cool. They said, you know, we can, awesome. we can replace you tomorrow, but you'll never replace this opportunity. So Jeez, if it doesn't work out, to those guys, and, uh, awesome. give us a ring when you get back and we'll give you another job. So I had nothing to lose. Um, I, I, they said, just leave now, just go. So I just packed up, jumped in my car, went home, packed my bags and, um, yeah, I was off the next day. So, uh, that's kind of where my, wow. my adventures started competing full time. And yeah, so I, I was pretty fortunate that, you know, they, they sent me around, uh, the world flying the comps and, uh, getting me that experience that I needed to, to, to get better. And then, uh, I guess 2000, oh, I'll tell you a funny story actually, um, <laughs>
0: Yes, please. More stories about
1: it. <laughs> when I, uh, a lot of people asked me how I uh, how I started with Red Bull and uh, my sponsorship with them. And uh, when Red Bull first hit uh, Australia in the, in the early 2000s, I was just like, oh, wow, that would just be the perfect sponsor, you know, because my dream was just to be sponsored and fly hang gliders for the rest of my life. Yeah. Um, you know, and I saw their ads and I was like, Red Bull gives you wings and I'm just like, Oh, that's perfect, <laughs> you know. What more can I ask for? And uh anyway, I uh I got an email one day from uh Red Bull and uh they, you know, kinda start along the lines of well, we've been watching you and uh seeing the great things you're doing and we'd like to um sponsor you or talk about sponsoring you and I was just like, Oh my god, you know, I, <laughs> I, I told the whole family, you know, and everyone's just like, wow, really? That's amazing. You know, and, um, it took me, I think, two days of sitting there on my computer, you know, just going, oh, how do I type an email back to this? You know, like this is Red Bull, you know, <laughs> eventually constructed an email and then I got an email back and this went on maybe for a few days or a few email exchanges and one night at dinner, my whole family was like, oh, did you hear from Red Bull today? And I was like, "Huh." Oh, they seem very interested in this conversation. And it uh, turns out that my nine-year-old sister had set up a, a, Red Bull, a Red Bull at Hotmail account, and I was obviously not clued on that. Uh, um. yeah.
0: Do you guys have like an April Fools or something no, down there?
1: No. I just, just thought it was funny being a little nine-year-old sister and uh,
0: oh my god, that's one of the best pranks I've ever heard. Yeah,
1: so uh, <laughs> it wasn't um, it, w- it wasn't what I was hoping from the emails, but um, a couple of years later or <laughs> a year or two later. <laughs> Uh I was over Is that in, the real one? I was over in Brazil or I think I was in Brazil at the time and my mom sent me an email and she's like, Oh, you'll never believe who called today. I'm like who? She's like Red Bull. I was like, Yeah. We've been through this one before. Yeah, right. <laughs> um She's like, No, really, really. And she's laughing. She's like, um, they want you to do an event over in Brazil. I was like, Oh, okay. And I'm like, Is this for real? She's like, Yeah, and she's still laughing. She's like, Yeah, but I think you have <laughs> got to do like a." a two kilometer ocean swim and then you got to do a 50 kilometer mountain bike ride and then you got to fly down the beach and do a 24 kilometer run and i'm like hmm <laughs> yeah <laughs> i'm not sure that i'm that sort of athlete but uh she's like well here's their contact get a hold of them and so it turns out that um it was actually a, a real email and i um got a hold of them, and they said, no, 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 we just want you to do the hang gliding part. We're, we're getting the best athlete in every sport from every country to compete. Mm. And it was called the Giants of Rio um, back in 2004, I think it was. And, uh, yeah, so they had the best ocean swimmer, the best mountain bike rider, the best hang glider pilot, and, and um, the best runner from every country or from 70 countries, all expenses paid to go to this event in, in Rio. So uh of course I took that opportunity wow. and um Yeah it was uh funny. Uh in there was obviously other uh, hang glider pilots from around the world that were going and uh Kurt Warren was actually chosen from uh the US uh, I think they had it was just Kurt. I'm not sure if Dustin was there. I don't remember. I think he may have been I think there might have been two teams from the US. Uh but Kurt was on the the A team so to speak. And uh the two weeks before the event we had our last competition in Australia and uh Kurt and I uh were duking it out for, for first place. Um and we ended up tied after five or six days of flying. Uh, you know, we tied in the competition and then we were like, All right, I guess we're gonna sort it out in Brazil uh when we do this uh this race for um for Red Bull, you know? <laughs> and uh, we were we were stage two, uh, stage three of the the race. So it was the the two k swim, fifty k mountain bike ride up through the mountains to to the takeoff, and then we flew down, landed on the spot, and then the uh, then the runners had to to do the beach run. And uh, you know seventy teams started out, and you know we're sitting on top of the mountain, and they're trying to the stage us because they all had trackers, and it's a pretty small takeoff there in Rio, so. You got to um, only X amount of gliders get set up at a time, so they're trying to figure out which countries are in the lead on who to set up. And uh, Australia and and the US were were the top two teams. And then Australia disappeared for a while, as the tractor stopped working or something, and it was like this and that. But uh, turned out that. Um, Australian was winning uh, when they got to to the takeoff and U.S. was second. So there we were out of all these pilots and Kurt and I were first and second on the ramp and we're like, how cool is this? You know, like we, just, it. we just tied in the last <laughs> competition and here we are standing on the ramp. And, um, yeah, as it turned out, uh, Australia ended up winning, winning the event. And, yeah, I think uh, the night before we actually had the race, I was out drinking at 4 o'clock in the morning still <laughs> with the uh, – with the Red Bull boss at the time. And, you know, he's like, we got time for another drink. I'm like, yeah. So um, (laughs) anyway, all the – we actually had the spot land on the beach and if we didn't land on the target, we had to do a 400-meter beach run. And only – I think only a few of us managed to get the spot out of everyone. Yeah, so all all my teammates, I I nailed the spot um, and all my teammates basically said we won because of Johnny, you know, and – (laughs) <laughs> and the guy's just going, man, if you can stay up drinking to that hour of the day and perform like you did the next day.
0: Uh, it, well, it worked for yeah, you. <laughs>
1: we we want to have you on the team for Red Bull, you know. You, you're the sort of person we like. So. <laughs> um, awesome. not, not that I could drink till the all hours of the morning, but just to, um, yeah. So anyway, that was the start of my Red Bull career it was um, was uh, after that event, winning that event, and, uh, yeah, went on to, to flying with them for the last 14 years and uh yeah they helped obviously support me traveling around the world as well and allowing me to uh do what i do
0: i was gonna say one of the you know i i got to hang out with will Gadd when we did the the rockies expedition a few years back which was a, a red bull funded film thing uh for their explorer series and you know, he was kind of one of the OGs. He's been with them forever. And I know it's more Red Bull Canada. I don't know if you're more Red Bull Australia or if it's, you know, the Austria. But, you know, as, as the years go by, um, do the obligations change? Are there obligations? I, I know a lot of people would be very curious because it's, you know, it's kind of the – pie-in-the-sky dream for a lot of athletes in a lot of different sports um, to be involved with, with Red Bull. I've never been involved with them as an athlete. I've always been involved with them through the Red Bull x or these films I've done. But what what do you have to do to maintain that? Because I remember Will almost said it was kind of a lifetime thing. You know, you're in, you're in. Yes and no. I don't know if that's sport-dependent or
1: – Yeah. Um, when I first started here in Australia – uh, they had, you know, pretty strict rules of who they sponsored and why they sponsored them. Um, obviously, they, as you can see, they sponsor a lot of the the top pilots or a lot of the top athletes in, in lots of different sports. Red Bulls is extremely good at getting the athletes just before they hit their prime. Uh, they're they're very good at scouting, watching people, and and um, trying to get the contract with them before they. The big time to try and get in at the right price, I guess. Um, yeah. But Red Bull is obviously it's a worldwide based out of Austria, but each country has its own budgets and its own obligations to the world to the headquarters, and they basically all get a budget from the headquarters depending on, I believe, how many cans they sell, how important they are, and. The athletes really depend on their country. So, I mean, I think obviously, you know, a lot of people don't stay that long with Red Bull. I'm one of the longest lasting Red Bull athletes in Australia. There is, you know, people like Mick Fanning and other people that are still with Red Bull that have been there since day one, Um, you know, 17, 18 years now. They're probably going on. But a lot of athletes, you know, they might only do a year, two years, three years with Red Bull and, and then they move on. Um, either because they haven't given them the results they wanted or they've got other sponsors or things like that. But I guess the obligations they, they change, you know, every every person's contract is different and every country's different with Red Bull. So, you know, for what Will Gad might be on, I have no idea. You know, every every pilot's got or every athlete's got a different contract. But basically, you you know, generally it was a it was a salary every year, incentives along the way. For me, they would give me three bonuses a year if I reached my targets of whatever it might be, winning one of the major competitions, or being world number one, or breaking a world record, or you know, things that I would say, well, this is what's important for me this year, and this is what I want to try and achieve. And if I'd reach those targets, they'd give me a bonus incentive, um, things like that. So. But yeah, you know, there's things that you obviously got to do for them. You got to do media stuff. You've got to be on social media. You got to post x amount of times per week or per month. It's you know, it's not just you're sponsored and you don't have to do anything anymore. You're always got to got to return some of the favors for uh, people giving you money. You know, so
0: it seems like you're. I mean, just in this conversation, it seems like your your focus has been mostly comps, but you've you've dove off into some other interesting things. Uh, we got to talk about flying the tsunami wave, the morning glory. I, you know, I'd seen that back when you did it, and I, you know, yesterday when I was preparing for this, I got sucked into that again.
1: Don't get man. sucked into it. That's the worst thing that can happen. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: I saw it sucked into the video of it, but man, it's just. Okay, two things. Could you do it on a really high end paraglider, and then just take us through it? How how you how did you discover it? How did you? I mean, can articulate what that experience was about? And are you still chasing it? Is it still is it still something you're working on?
1: Yeah. So one of, one of my things with Red Bull the contract was I had to supply them with two ideas of uh, projects that I wanted to do every year. So I had to come forward, and I would have to say these are two things that I want to try and do with Red Bull. And uh, they would look at them. If they liked them, they would submit them. And then if it went through the approvals in Australia and they gave it all the green light, then they'd submit it to the worldwide Red Bull to seek permission and funding and things like that to, to make it happen. And Morning Glory was the number one thing on my list Obviously there'd been a handful of pilots. I think I was the twelfth person to fly the Morning Glory. But I, I knew the the early guys, the guys that flew it first, a few pilots in between that and just from the competitions, them telling me the story of them flying the Morning Glory and just looking into their eyes and just seeing how mind blowing they were when they were talking about it. I guess just gave me that that real dream of passion of wanting to go up there and fly it because I could tell that they were you know it was the flight of the life for them it wasn't competition it wasn't cross country it wasn't anything like that but just as free flying goes it's you know probably one of the most amazing things you'll ever see uh from a hang glider or paraglider uh, in your lifetime you know um I think when you're so used to looking at clouds and watching them form and dissipate and and to see this thing just rolling through the sky like a tsunami and being right next to it as it's doing it is, you know, something you're never going to forget. So yeah, it was, like I said, it was the first thing that I wanted to do when um, they said, Oh, listen, you've got to come up with projects. I'm like, well, this is it.
0: And, and you said there were, there were 11 or 12 pilots before you're talking hang glider pilots or are these all, were these all sailplane pilots that had flown it before?
1: No hang glider pilots. So they, okay. they went up there and uh, the first guys, they were just car towing uh, on the Salt Flats. Um, probably, I don't know when the first one flew it. I'm going to say early 2000, maybe late 90s. Okay. Probably late 90s, actually. But yeah, I mean, they just, you know, every single one that flew it, I, they were just, you could just see that they all had the same look on their face. Like they'd just seen a ghost. And, yeah, it was just like, okay, that's that's what I want to do and uh, convince Red Bull that, you know, that was a project that I wanted to do and they gave it the green light and I said, listen, you know, I'm not the first one. They're always chasing something to be the first, the first person to do this, first person to do that. Or and I said, listen, I'm not going to be the first, but no one has actually documented the cloud. Um, they've taken their 35 millimeter cameras up there and developed film Some were in black and white, some were in color. Um, And, you know, they're just them flying with a little camera, taking photos of each other. And um, no one's actually done a documentary on the cloud and the phenomena that it is and had the amazing footage. I said, if we get a helicopter and we have, you know, a good camera and good crew, I said, this is going to be a mind-blowing experience, not just for me, but for all the viewers that get to watch it. So they agreed on it. We went up there, spent two weeks in two thousand eight. <clears throat> saw a couple morning glories out over the ocean. Never got to fly one. <laughs> Actually, the that would be cool. First one, first <laughs> one came through the first morning we got there after driving two and a half thousand kilometers, and um, we didn't have the dragonfly set up to to tow me up. And uh, we saw it coming and. My friend Leroy, he was like, uh, he was a tug pilot, but he's done a lot of car towing. I hadn't done much. He's like, I've got all the the gear here. Let's let's just go, hook you up. And uh, so it took a little while to get sorted. And this thing, watching it come, I'm like, it's moving pretty fast. And by the time we got ready, uh, the wind just started to pick up from uh, from the gust front of it. And um, it was kind of crosswind and I wasn't too keen because I hadn't really cartoed in my life. And I'm like, oh, this this could all go bad. And I'm like, well, just maybe wait a second, see what happens. And within 20 seconds, um, my dad was holding in front of my glider and I was holding in front of my glider. Uh, It went from zero kilometers an hour to 50 kilometers an hour just standing there and I'm just looking at him going, don't let go of me because I'm just going to get <laughs> flipped upside down and dragged along the plates of my glider. And then, you know, he's holding the nose that low with the wind that as soon as the front passed us, the wind went the other way and nearly got flipped upside down the other way. Um, Jeez. So there is a lot, of, uh, a lot of wind associated with that cloud. That was
0: probably great that you got that lesson from the ground right off the bat to just give you some humility about what was going on there and just – and some understanding, I imagine. You got to kind of see what you're not usually able to see. Yeah,
1: 100%. I mean, just doing – you know being set up in my harness, everything connected to the glider, but still being on the ground and having one go over me and seeing – what the weather does underneath it was certainly a, a good little eye opener that I don't want to be anywhere around it on the ground, uh, as far as landing or, or taking off goes. So, yeah, that was it was a great lesson, but yeah, we spent two weeks after that up there in what they call one of the most isolated towns in all of Australia and uh, I never got to fly more than glory. And that's what they call it was a reconnaissance trip, you know, we blew probably fifty thousand dollars on that trip and then. So next year they're like all right what's project i'm like well i still want to do this one and they're like are you sure this thing even exists i'm like look there's videos there's photos that happens
0: <laughs> is it a really tiny window every year is it just a, yeah. a certain kind of what 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 sets it up what is the town
1: it's called it's it? called burke town it's in far north queensland uh, at the bottom of the okay. cape York. you know it's it's a weather phenomena that it, it does. It generally happens at a certain time of the year, which is September, October. It can happen throughout the year randomly. Basically, it's formed on the the peninsula of in the north part of Australia by the two sea breezes coming in from both sides of the coast, and you get this convergence. Basically, that that forms up. Uh, most days, the hot air goes up. Midnight starts to come back down. And the main the main sea breeze from from the east coast pushes this phenomena down down the cape and down towards this little town of Birktown. And sometimes it's when everything works out, it's got it's got the cloud with it, and it's just this rolling cloud front, basically convergence line that's been pushed from you know starts about midnight at night. They call it the morning glory because it pretty much hits Town right on sunrise. Sometimes it comes through in the dark. Um, you know, there's some mornings there where we we woke up to the sound of thirty knots of wind and we just knew that it was a morning glory going through and like, shit, we've missed it. Uh, <laughs> it came too early this morning. Uh, sometimes it's a little bit later. Uh, so, But, yeah, I think that's where it got its name was, you know, this phenomena that just happens in the morning up there and, you know, it's just it's just glorious to look at. You know, and it was mostly the fishermen. It's a very it's the biggest town in Australia for abundant uh, barramundi fishing. So people kind of know Burketown from that, and then they they see this cloud that just mysteriously goes over them, and it gets dark and gloomy, and they think they're, they're going to die on, out in the fishing boat, and then all of a sudden it's a beautiful day again. Five minutes later,
0: but it's. Uh- but unlike a, it sounds like it's a rolling convergence, so it's 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 moving down the coast as kind of one beast, as one animal. It's in other words, it's not it's not a stationary. You know, a convergence is typically pretty stationary. You know, in a mountain or something. But this one's actually moving. It's kind of, it's getting it's pushed. Kind of like
1: a tidal wave. So oh, it's wow. kind of like throwing a okay. rock in a pond, and then you get those ripples going through the pond, um, which is basically the effect that it has in the sky as the the ground heats up it slows the morning glory down, um, just from the friction on the ground. Uh mm-hmm. and then eventually it dissipates just because it does, it's not sliding across the ground like, you know, like it's on right. ice um when when it's cool. You know, it starts out pretty fast. The cloud's actually rolling probably a lot quicker in the in the nighttime uh than it is when you actually get to fly it. The first cloud I flew was probably travelling in the 40 to 50 kilometer an hour range uh, across the ground. Yeah. Um And obviously you're flying sideways along the cloud. So, you know, I was doing speeds of 70 to 90 Ks an hour, basically to keep up with the cloud as I was flying along it. Yeah. So I guess to answer your question about flying a paraglider on it, mm, it's going to take, take some balls.
0: Really at the outer limits here. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, you, if you – if you come down through at your toast. You've got to stay on the – is it like flying wave in a sense? Are you are you flying the leeward side and or you've got to stay on the windward side?
1: Well, it's, it's kind of not really a windward side because it's just going around in circles. So you're basically just staying on the leading edge side, uh, which is okay. all the lifts going up and then it's going all down on the back side.
0: It's all going down. So if you get flipped over, you go, you get flipped to the back you your toast. pretty
1: much like surfing a, a, a back-to-front wave. Um, okay. So you can just gotcha. imagine if you're trying to surf the the backside of the wave and you get too high on it, all of a sudden you get sucked back over the falls and you're gone. Um, you get mm. the turbulence, the rotor, the sink, all that stuff. Yeah, so it's, it's kind of a bit unique in that sense. You know, the first cloud I flew was almost horizon to horizon. You know, you just, you realize how small you are against this cloud that's just, you know, you can just see it just, just rolling and it's it's pretty incredible to to see from the sky
0: we'll have all the links to that those of you listening in the in the show notes it's outrage. the footage is i mean most of you are, i'm sure have already seen it but it's just outrageous the footage is outrageous
1: it is and i, I you know red bull went all out on that uh documentary they they got absolutely the best of the best uh, for the production. They flew the director in from Canada. They flew the head cameraman in from New York. They flew, you know, these these guys have done all the big adventure films around the world, all the different sports. And every single one of the crew agreed that it was in their top few best projects they've ever done in their life. Wow. Just to, to see that phenomena, most of them, got to see it from the air, whether they're in the helicopter or in the Dragonfly filming or in some other aircraft. A lot of them got to see it from the air. A few only saw it from the ground, but even the ones that were on the ground, they just said watching this thing come and then getting that, that strong gust of wind and the Red Bull marquee nearly blowing over sideways and the tripods falling over and they said it was just incredible to just see this thing. So yeah, it was you know, I wasn't the only one that was blown away at the end of that documentary, but obviously Did you
0: get it the second year? I, was it the how many times did, yes, it, did it
1: take? So it was the second year we went up there with the full crew. There was a huge you know, I said there was a big budget. I think it was day six or day seven. So we'd been waiting and I mean, I don't like to throw numbers out there, but I think we're in summer and uh thirty to forty thousand dollars a day standby uh <laughs> so every day was calling to the to the uh, the head office and ex- trying to convince them that yeah, this glory is going to come after one, spending two weeks <laughs> out of the year before and not getting one. It was starting to be quite an expensive project uh but uh once we got that first day, you know everyone was just they couldn't believe you know the the photographers and the director and stuff they were just looking at the footage straight away as you can imagine that night. And they were just like, "Oh my god, we have some of the most insane footage we've ever seen in our life and anything." And then we got another one the next day, which was a lot different and a lot more scarier. Mm. It was. They say the best ones come when it's it's all foggy in the morning. So the ground, you just have this layer of fog on the ground. But uh, the problem we had with that was the dragonfly couldn't take off and fly out to the location. But they just got this small window of opportunity. Um the fog just broke for a for a little bit and they took off, landed where we were and I quickly uh hooked the tow rope up. We started towing and we were literally we towed into the, the bottom of the morning glory. Legally speaking, I don't think it was that legal because I actually lost sight of the dragonfly. The tow rope's only seventy meters long.
0: Jeez. And I
1: immediately said, Do a U turn. Uh, I think we are at the bottom of the glory and I kind of knew what was going to be associated, you know. Uh, so we spent a little bit of probably 20, 30 seconds where I was staring at just the tow rope going, I hope weak link doesn't break because <laughs> <laughs> I can't see anything. <laughs> and uh, we popped out to basically outrunning the glory. So we'd done a 180-degree turn from takeoff. And uh, I looked over my right shoulder and I looked up and it was it was like a 2,000-foot wave. We'd literally just popped out the bottom of this morning glory cloud and it was fog as far as I could see in front of me and just a 2,000-foot wave right behind me. And we just towed yeah. up alongside this cloud for what, 10 minutes, I guess. And I was hesitant to release from the plane because I still couldn't set the ground and I had... No idea where I was. Uh, There was a lot of forest and there's a lot of crocodiles up there. And I knew that I had to just fly one direction because of the forest downwind of me. Obviously, there's an ocean there too. Uh, So there was a a lot of things that were playing on my mind. And (laughs) the moment I released from the plane, I realized that the cloud was moving that fast and there wasn't that much lift on it. That The speed I was flying, I was literally just maintaining uh, I wasn't going up or wasn't going down, but I was just, just keeping up with the front edge of this cloud, and uh, I kind of spent, I think, 30 to 40 minutes with no visual Ooh. of the ground. Like, I mean, I had visual in the Jeez. sky, but it was just – Yeah. Uh, so I was just flying this this cloud. like It was the biggest ski jump you've seen in your life <laughs> right on the front edge of it, uh, and eventually the, the fog – you know, once it started to heat up the ground, the fog burnt off, and uh, I flew out from the cloud. I think I did fifty, fifty something miles in the cloud that day. Whoa. And yeah, flew out in front and landed before. Pucker it, factor. Yeah, yeah, it is. It was. That was the day my eyes really lit up, but yeah, that was. You know, to to get two morning glories in a row and and for them to be so different. I mean, that day we had, I think, 10 or 11 of them lined up back to back. So they came as a big set. Uh, So behind the one I had, all I could see was clouds as far as I could see, just lines, just like big waves coming through. Whereas the first one was just one cloud and it was blue skies and everything was just perfect. But day two was… Were the one…
0: Were the ones that were all lined up on day two, was it really more like a wave phenomenon? Were they stacked up on top of one another? Were they just
1: No, like behind they're behind each other, just like a set of waves coming in. So like two, three kilometers behind the one I was on was another big one. And then another one and another one. I think the helicopter went to ten ten or eleven thousand feet to to capture all of them for the for the doco because they couldn't believe what they were saying. They're like the helicopter pilot said he was he was that scared flying. Because he'd never been that high in a helicopter, they mostly they mostly do mustering and stuff like that. You know, they fly low level. He goes, "I'd never been to ten thousand right. feet in my life. It was the first time I went that high in a helicopter." And he, he didn't like being that high, you know. <laughs> so there's a lot of firsts for everybody that day. The footage they got from that day was just incredible because I, I literally looked like a speck along this cloud. You know, there's a shot where they they zoomed right in. They had the Cineflex camera, so they had amazing camera. And they zoom right in on me, and then they just zoom out, and they just keep zooming out, so they can see the full cloud, and I literally disappear. Like that's how small I am against it. So yeah, some some amazing footage on there, and um, you know, it's been the most famous thing I've done for Red Bull in in my fourteen years with them. I. I still do interviews for it, you know, <laughs> people still call me to do interviews. Yeah, I mean the, <laughs> so. the
0: footage is just, the footage is outrageous. And I remember seeing it when it first came out and thinking, just having my mind blown and, you know, looking at it again yesterday, it was kind of the same experience. It's just Jesus. I mean, I, I think it's, uh, I'm sure it's a little different for people that fly to, to see you flying that, you know, cause you can imagine it in some ways, you know, you, you're never going to get the experience like you did, but you know, I can imagine being in that
1: cockpit just
0: going, what? This is fucking outrageous. Yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> that's so, so cool. I mean, for me, that was, you know, that was a a dream come true. And to, to do it twice was, you know, to have two of your dreams come true in two days was pretty amazing.
0: Is it something you would do to just go do now? Or, or was that second day enough of a, man, I don't know, that's, is it? Is it really right on the edge of safety risk or is it that was just a really bad day
1: yeah i mean obviously for me i had i had helicopter support i had medical i had everything with all the projects i've done with red bull obviously it's a factor that they have to have for me to do it whereas you know the guys that did it before me or there's only been one guy that's done it after me and he got swallowed into it but none of them had anything you know they just went up there and hooked themselves to the back of a car and got towed up you know so you know, it, it is something I would do again. I actually was trying to get talked into doing it this year. A friend of mine had a trike and he was going up there and he's like, I got the trike, you could just come along. And uh, it was very tempting and I didn't end up doing it. But uh, it's not, I, I kind of would like to do it on a sailplane just because only one in four actually get to the to the coast a lot of the times the best morning glories are out over the ocean Mm. and i think just to to experience in the sailplane uh having that extra speed and just racing at 200 plus k's an hour down this this cloud front in and over the ocean Mm. and things like that would be just something a little different not to say i wouldn't do it in the hang glider again i just uh you know it's I know what's involved. You know, I've spent a month up there and flown it twice and it's there's really nothing in a the town. There's nothing to do without it. And, there's a, you know, it's a lot of waking up at 4 o'clock in the morning, setting up in the dark, and, you know, there's, there's a lot of effort into flying it, and I've been fortunate that I've done it twice. And, you know, like I said, I'd love to do it again, but, um, it, you know, it's an expensive thing. And, you know, this year was probably a great opportunity to do it because...
0: You were there.
1: Well, he was there. The main cost was there, which is to get someone to tow you (laughs) up. But, uh, yeah, you know, it didn't happen. And I won't say I won't do it again, but uh, it just hasn't been that high on my list because I feel like I've already achieved it and, you know, I've done it. But tick
0: the box. Yeah. Yeah. Well that that's a perfect segue Johnny you mentioned you said a whole bunch of words there that reminded me a lot of Texas uh you know endurance nothing to do <laughs> bad weather lots of patience uh i don't know if it's hot up there in, in cape york i remember it being pretty hot up there when i did the daintree and stuff but texas let's talk texas i i Cody and i and and uh Donizete went down to have a go at the world record two summers ago. And that was right after Sebastian went five Oh something and, and broke the paragliding Mm -hmm. record. And then this year he went six Oh eight or something. So, uh, Texas has been on everybody's map lately. You've put in a lot of time down there as your buddy Dustin has, and he was on the show. He talked about that day, uh, that when he got the record and you were, you were chasing him hard at the end and just missed out and you put in quite a bit of time since then, but let's talk a little bit about Texas. I'd love to just a get your, you know, cause you went back to make a film about chasing the record um, recently too. And I uh, watched that yesterday. That was good. Uh, but didn't have the weather as we didn't. Sebastian seems to have nailed it. He's down in Dallas and he's kind of gotten it figured out and he just shows up on the day. But for those of us like I live a long way by car away from there you know this is a big country as yours is as well but you have to really invest uh coming across the pond it's kind of brutal man but it's it's fun isn't it it's it's also it's it's kind of addictive in a weird way I don't know why but it is <laughs> i can't wait to go back but i'd love to get your thoughts on texas and and uh, are you done with that chase or is it still on your mind
1: um i i think Owning the longest flight in the world, uh, and anything is is pretty special. Owning the second longest flight in the world, well, <laughs> it's also pretty special. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yep. Yeah. It's uh, you know it's always it's always been a dream of mine to own that world record, um, and that's why I did like you have put in time in in Texas and and trying to achieve that goal. Uh, it's. As you mentioned, it's all of the above. It's hot. It's desolate. It's not much to do, and you're only there for one reason, and that's to to spend all day in the air flying, uh, trying to fly out of Texas. But uh, as we know, that <laughs> that panhandle is quite long, and uh, no one's done it yet. It's a so, way. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it's hard work. It's obviously it's a lot of planning. Uh, for us, we need to have tow plane there which requires a lot of money, a lot of time, getting that there. And um, and then, you know, I've always said the hardest thing about owning a world record is being there on the day. So, you know, to 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 get to the point of actually being there and able to fly on a potentially world record day is is half the work. The flight itself, well, that's obviously a bit of hard work. And then <laughs> once you achieve it, the the hardest part is uh is actually getting the claim (laughs) into and getting it actually ratified (laughs) so um you you spend more time trying to do that than you do everything else i think (laughs) so uh yeah but you know for me I, i can't think of anything better than spending 11 hours in the air and covering a lot of ground it's um Something that I've always loved to do and, you know, something I chased here locally, always had a battle with my father of owning the site record here. And, you know, and that kind of just moved on once I, you know, I've got a handful of flights of the 500 kilometer mark from our what we call coastal site here which was the Australian record for, for, for a very long time. And, you know, seeing these guys flying that long distance in Texas always had that draw card for me to want to go there and, and give it a crack myself because um, I thought, well, it's got to be much better flying than I have got here in my backyard. So I want to have a crack at going the long distance, you know. And, um, yeah, I guess I went there one year, 2006 maybe, early days. I think Manfred had the record of 700 kilometres and Mikey Barber flew a little further, but not far enough to claim a world record. Uh, you know, he he didn't beat it by one percent, I think was the record of the rules back then. He did oh, wow. he did seven hundred and five kilometres and he needed to do seven hundred and seven. Um, to actually
0: Wow, well, I didn't know that rule.
1: Yeah, so he you know, Mikey unfortunately just passed away this year. But you know for for many years he had the longest flight in the world just wasn't wasn't a ratified one because he didn't go one percent further than uh, than the previous mm. record. Uh, they eventually changed that over time, but they also changed a lot of other rules. Back then they were towing to ten thousand feet and mm-hmm. releasing from the plane this and been a big one. and getting a three, a free 40, 50 Ks in the early hours of the day when it was the hardest to stay up. You know, yeah. you've flown to Pata or Texas and, uh, you know, the hardest part of the flight is the first hour. You're flying through lock gates, few landings. Cloud base is sometimes 10 feet. 1,500 <laughs> feet off the ground. Sometimes, <laughs> if you're lucky, it's, I think the day Dustin and I did it was about 2,000 feet. So it's low, and you got to go crosswind a lot of time, cross tailwind on every glide to get around the airspace that's downwind of you. So it's a really challenging first hour or so. And for those guys that flew the 700Ks, they were towed to 10,000 feet and had a huge head start, which was something that we weren't able to do, you know, to put the rules in of flying to 1,000 meters or towing to 1,000 meters only so yeah there was a bit of a disadvantage but you know it wasn't obviously didn't mean that you couldn't break the world record it was just you just had to uh do it the harder way Mm. and i guess on that particular day uh or that particular event that we were down there in zapata texas dustin you know I, i arrived in the country from i can't remember where i was brazil or somewhere and uh dustin um you know, I talked to him as soon as I got off the plane. I had to drive from San Antonio, I think I was, down to Zapata and he said, uh, uh, oh, dude, you guys, you know, it's bad week of weather, you're not gonna go anywhere and I'm like, Come on down, like this, you know it's gonna be good, we'll have fun, we'll try and go far and he's like, ah, it's gonna suck. The weather's no good. It's not gonna happen and you know, prior to that, Texas uh Texas encampment, uh Dust and I had broken the uh the east coast record from in florida and we flew the whole day together and we landed together uh, we did i don't know 480 kilometers or something whatever it was so i was like come on i need someone to fly with you know come on down he's like no 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 and then you know four five six days passed and all of a sudden the weather started looking good and i get a phone call from Dustin. i'm coming down <laughs> oh well, now the weather's looking good you're coming down because he was able to drive you know he was in phoenix he was still a day's drive away but um you know he was able to get down there and he's like but i got no retrieve and i got nothing you know i'm like oh well good luck <laughs> uh, <laughs> and anyway you know we kind of had it was we only had one tow plane so it was like who goes first and all that sort of thing and on that particular day i you know i kind of had a priority and uh i kind of let dustin go first I said, oh, it was kind of a little bit blue and I just, I didn't want to deck it early and I said, oh, you go first, Dustin. And, um, you know, just at the time after he took off to while he was towing, I just went, oh, I should have been on the tow rope. Like the clouds just started forming. He kind of got off right at the right time, I think. Possibly could have gone earlier um, in the blue, but it was a good time. And by the time the tow plane got back and towed me up, I was 15 minutes later, you know, so... He had a little bit of a hop, skip and a jump on me. Yeah, you know, I was chasing him down the whole day and I think after three or four hours I eventually caught him about the 180-kilometer mark. And then, uh, yeah, we flew together for a long time. Uh, It it wasn't that great of a day. Uh, We had wind. We had clouds. Climbs were pretty average. Uh, Every now and again we'd get a good climb. Um, we went through the hill country side by side he got kind of low and I kind of left him behind for for a glide or two and then I got low and he came over the top of me and then we were sort of leapfrogging each other for a while and then um, I got low in one glide and and I just from then on I was just chasing him he was just like a cloud in front of me the whole day and uh, I just kept chasing 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 and myself into a situation probably around the 500 kilometer mark i guess where i end up quite low scratching for a while and then uh, he was gone i never saw him again and i just thought oh, i just got to do my own thing you know just reset get high stop racing from down low trying to chase him and just you know re-establish yourself and do your own thing and yeah and uh so i just kind of flew by myself and i got really high on one glide and i was like this is it i can i can just about make the 700 kilometer mark from this glide you know or i've got it like i just like i just got to stay in the air i had no idea where Dustin was um radio silence and uh i just on glide it was silky smooth i think the clouds there was like maybe a couple wispies left at that point i'm just gliding and uh i think maybe three or four k's before the where the current world record stood. Uh, Dustin just popped up in front of me on the horizon. He was like half a K in front of me and he'd been climbing from low. And I came in and we were like wingtip to wing tip oh, as we so circled crazy. in about fifty up. And we basically we crossed the, the world record line together, um, tip to tip, you know, we were kinda I don't know, I think his radio had stopped working. We were kind of just yelling at each other. And, you know, we we're that close we could talk. And we were, we were pretty excited both of us at that moment um and uh yeah i was kind of i had the gopro on i was trying to film the whole thing you know and then we kind of topped out on that climb and or next climb and the, st- the sun started to go down uh and i wanted to capture the uh well, actually before that dustin just kept stopping he's just like kept circling in zeros and 20s up i'm just like dude, I'm looking i'm like been flying for 10 and a half hours We've broken the world record, like, just let's go and land, you know. Like, I was done. I was just like, I'm over. it. We achieved what we came here to do, which was break the world record, and we've done that now. Do we really need to sit in zeros watching the sun go down, you know? (sighs) Apparently, we did. (laughs) I obviously didn't have the patience, and, uh, you know, we were on glide, and he stopped, and I was like, and I just kept gliding, and I was trying to get the camera going because the sun the sun was setting, and I wanted to capture that sunset moment of being up there all day and breaking the world record. And and you know, I, I probably went about three four hundred meters, and I looked back, and it looked like it was climbing. So I, so I turned around, I flew back in the wind, um, which was obviously a mistake on my part. Came in below him. 100 meters below him, and there was nothing there. And uh, then he turned around and went on glide. And uh, yeah, we basically both glided to the ground, but he had that extra 100 meters on me then and um, oh. flew that extra two kilometers. And uh, yeah, well, still owns the world record. So. Uh, oh. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I could <laughs> see the frustration. I should have just kept grinding and uh, not, not turned around. But, um, you know, I, I I achieved the world, you know, breaking the world distance record, which is what I wanted to do. And, um, you know, had been standing for 12 years, I think. So, yeah. you know, I'd gone there. I achieved what I wanted to do. Um, Dustin got the better of me on that last little moments of concentration while i was a little bit distracted i think and uh yeah i just you know a lot of a lot of people say well he should have just landed with you and you know share the record together and that's what the paragliders do and uh you know you guys wouldn't have done that flight without each other and you know there's not there's not any part of me that thinks that either one of us couldn't have done that flight without the other person you know i don't think that Obviously, it probably helped us flying together, sped things up a little bit. I would like to think if he wasn't there, I still would have had the same outcome, and I'm sure he thinks the same way. So, But, yeah, it was funny because Dustin, you know, we had, uh, well, Dustin and I go way back uh, (laughs) to early days here when he first came to Australia. I'm not sure if you touch on that subject, but um, (laughs) there was a lot of of rivalry between Dustin and I for, for many years. And uh so he got one back on me, let's say, uh, <laughs> on that flight. Uh which was a good one to get me back on, I'm not gonna lie. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, you know, like like I said, a lot of people think that he should have, you know, wasn't very sportsman sportsman like and things like that. But uh at the end of the day everybody would have done the same thing. So
0: <laughs> Yeah, and I mean it was it was um you know, I remember, I remember him, he, we talked about this too. And I brought that, that very subject in, and he said it was, it, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't really the plan. You know, you guys didn't have that gentleman's agreement to begin with. It was, you know, chasing the world record and, you know, it's so easy to look back on something with 2020 hindsight. And, and, but I, you know, in, in my, my own history, which isn't as long as either of yours, it was really the Brazilians and not until after, you know, they were definitely chasing the world record back in the mid 2000s as well. But, you know, they started really doing this team thing uh, in 2007. But really got going on it when they broke when they broke the 500 in 2015, I believe it was. <clears throat> and then there's been a string of them since. But, you know, they they kind of taught the rest of the world the sexiness of landing together, you know, working together all day and having this, you know, and really putting the machinery together for who does what in certain situations. And if you're low, you do this. And if you're high, you do this and, you know, really working together. And then, then you land together. And I I don't think that that was something that was on really anybody's radar until they started doing it. And, and now it's very much, you know, because I got to fly with Donagheite, who was part of that, you know, record chasing team in Brazil since the beginning, and he really taught us a lot about that. And so when we went to Texas, that was it was very much a team thing. But anything else I've ever done with anybody, you're on your own. That's what this sport's all about. You know, it's it's flying solo, and uh, you know we've all got egos. But yeah, that must have been. Uh, <laughs> it must have been. I think, says, I like, think that, ouch,
1: but I think the it, difference <laughs> with what the paragliders are doing and our situation was that our record is measured from the time we release from the, the plane. So it's not from mm. where we took off from, it's from our release point. And right. the odds of Dustin and I releasing in the same point after being towed for 10, Whoa. 11 minutes up in the sky by the dragonfly. Is I hadn't even thought of that. is probably you know a very small chance that we released in the same you know same oh, distance. Oh
0: right, so you couldn't have really done it.
1: Anyway, As it turned right? out, we were point. probably almost in the same same exact distance uh, point. Maybe not the same exact location, but the same distance. We probably would have flown the same uh, the same distance. But at the end of the day, it, it was. High odds that even if we'd landed together, one of us was going to have a longer flight than the other. Hmm. Oh, I hadn't even thought of that. So you know, it's, like I said, everybody would have done the same thing. I I would have flown that extra two kilometers if I was above Dustin. Don't worry about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or I might have found <laughs> Well, a, you guys I will might have had have have a, a reunion. You know, it's a ten year reunion coming up. <laughs> um, there you go but yeah uh you know I've done a lot of flying with Dustin over the years and uh you know we're we're good friends and we once we get to the skies we we certainly like to battle it out so yeah it was uh, one to him on that one he he was quite a few down before that so uh it was um a good win for him that one uh but you know like i said at the end of the day to to have both broken the world record and, and achieved what we went there to do was um, main goal. And I felt like I crossed the goal line, but I just didn't get the extra bonus points at the end, you know. Sure. But, yeah, I think, you know, for me to, to tell people, you know, oh, you hang glide yeah, yeah. So you just jump from the cliff and you fly to the bottom. I'm like, well, not really. We actually can go quite a long way. It's like how far? like You know, you probably saw in that in that wind rider documentary that I did, you know, people you know, they try to guess on how far you're going to fly. And some say, oh, 10 miles, 20 miles, maybe 40 miles. And to think that you can fly that far, um, it just blows people's minds. They're like, but you have no engine. How do you do that? Yeah. And for me, it's, uh, I know the the old world record, the 700 kilometers was, uh, I used to do a lot of flying from Brisbane here down to Sydney or, when I would travel overseas, I'd always take a plane trip and that was exactly 700 kilometres. So every time I took off on the plane, I'd get a window seat and I'd stare out there and I'd watch all the territory you got to go over. And i think, man, that's a long day in a hang glider. You know, it's a lot of ground to cover. And, uh, you know, I do that every single flight. I just go, yeah. so that's what i got to do. i got to fly that far to break the world record. And for me to be able to tell people around here that, you know, the longest flight I've done in a hang glider is further than Brisbane to Sydney, they just go what in one day or do you get to stop and have dinner and stuff and <laughs> go the next day i'm like no that's just 11 hours straight They you know they just look at you like wow that's that's a big achievement they don't really you most know? of the
0: time they don't even really understand it i remember landing in texas and a guy pulled up alongside He has a big huge truck you know proper texas truck and and uh well, where'd you come from I, I came from hebronville you know which is right down near zapata and we were you know I don't remember where we were north of the hill country. It wasn't a huge one, but it was over 300 K and it was, and he, he just couldn't, where'd you jump from? Well, Hebronville, how high was the plane?
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I think you're a parachute. No, no, I came off
0: the ground. (laughs) 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 Yeah. You got
1: blown all the way. Yeah. It it was pretty funny. Yeah. So, um, yeah. I mean, obviously you know, that's the joys of Texas is breaking a world record. The non-joys of Texas, uh, you probably saw in that last documentary I did too of being escorted out by uh, deputies and police and border patrol. And, you know, I had a little interesting landing when I tried for the, the records a few years ago with Red Bull and I landed on a big property right on the border of Mexico. And, I mean, I didn't look like a Mexican, but they still treated me like I'd just jumped over the border so uh you know there was it looked like a funeral possession when i got out of this this property there was i think 10 or 12 cop cars and border patrols and all these flashing lights going on and there they were delivering this hangout out pilot um <laughs> back to to the retrieve car that had my passport and all the camera crew there waiting to film it and, uh, it was pretty funny but you know they, they had to go through their the protocols and do everything as they do down there and yeah you know you can you can land out and in, in texas and be walking for a long ways i mean paragliding is different i've since found out you just pack the thing up stick it on your back and walk uh with the hang glider it's not quite that easy it's uh, you land behind no. a lock gate and uh you know people have had helicopter yeah. retrievals because it's you know the five ten miles off a road or behind lock gates and they don't want to carry the glider that far um other people yeah have walked all day they've done 10-12 minutes of flying and spent six hours getting out of there um, which they say yeah, you can it's, a, it's a you can fly place. 300 k's there and get back sooner than somebody that flies 10 kilometers and that's yeah, a, that's a true story that's true <laughs> uh, yeah, no, that, we saw
0: that in our case
1: yeah they land out and they're in the middle of nowhere with no roads and or lock gates and they're, they're walking, they're hiking for, you know, all day long in that hot blistering 40 degree heat. Yeah. Uh,
0: yeah, I, I, uh, when I was down there, I was training for the X-Alps. So, you know, I was pretty fit and, you know, like you said, that first hour is the section that's just, Nasty, it's just mesquite and wind farms and no roads, and the roads that are there are all behind gates, and they're not lined up with the wind and uh yeah, i land i you know flew ten k or thirty k you know nothing and landed and uh walking out was. Like, man, this is actually life threatening. It <laughs> is. Just, yeah. It was so hot and so I mean, it, a couple of times I thought, I'm just gonna have to leave my gear. I, I don't think I can, you know, because we're not flying X Alps gear and when we're doing that. We got a big heavy kit, nothing like hang gliding kit, but still heavy kit and just man, this is it was torture. Mm. <laughs> it is brutal.
1: No, I've been fortunate that I've only, only had to land out once there. Off the beaten track, so to speak. So I've, uh, yeah, I've been pretty fortunate with my Texas uh, encampments, but uh, yeah, I definitely tread carefully, and I work very hard on every low save because you know, you know, sometimes every five circles could save you an hour walking. So you know, just getting you to that next road potentially, um, as you said, the roads don't line up with the wind. Uh, you're always crossing roads and. If you can get to a main road, uh, it might be another ten, fifteen kilometers downwind of you. If you can just stay in the air for five more minutes, you're going to get glide to that road, and you know your life's just gotten so much better already. Even if you land, um, you just feel like you've accomplished something. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, right. Yeah, totally. It's, it's a hard place. It's you know, it's a great place to do records, but it's also can be very challenging it's if you uh, if you're on the ground. So.
0: Yeah, it's not a gimme for sure. Johnny, I want to be mindful of your time and wrap things up here. This has been a super pleasure and I could do this for hours. But just before we do, two two quick questions they are quite different. Uh the first is if you could go back to your fifty hour self, which was somewhere in your early teens, sounds like, um, uh, what would you do differently? And then I think everybody would love to know when we uh when we could start traveling again, what's next for what's next for you? What's, what's on, what's a goal? What's on your horizon? Is it more Texas? Is it world breaking encampments or is it something else?
1: All right. Back to my 50 hour self. Well, I was still at high school flying on weekends. Uh, Still didn't have a license at that point. Uh, So I was relying on um, my father or friends to come pick me up and take me flying. You know, I guess for me, I was just, I was just so into flying and, and trying to fly far at that point, it was all about going distance, staying in the air as long as I could. And, um, yeah, I do not know what I would change from that. You know, probably taking more days off from school and flying more. <laughs> ah.
0: <laughs> so your advice would be to do more of it. <laughs> I like it.
1: <laughs> yeah, I certainly don't look back and think that I wish I'd changed anything. You know, I've had a great, great life. And, uh, yeah, I... I would just probably fly more if I could have back then because, uh, yeah, I had full-time school and uh, every now and again I took sports days off when the weather was too good to go to school. There was definitely several occasions where I got to school and turned around and hitchhiked my way back home just in time to see my father driving out with his hang glider on. I'd be like, uh ah, how about we go back and get my glider too. Cause, uh, so, um, yeah, probably would have taken more days off from school to fly. <laughs> Um, and what's next? Well, that's a great question. I've literally been traveling since I was 21 um, to nearly 20 years, uh, traveling the world and uh, competing and sort of just not really having a plan, just doing all the comps. And now that I've been at home for two years, stuck here, it's kind of, I don't know, it feels like that dream of flying all the time is sort of coming to an end i don't know why but um probably just because i haven't been able to travel for so long but uh it's been you know it's been kind of nice too just being in one place and not living out of a suitcase for for more than uh, a couple of weeks at a time so um yeah i don't know it's uh it's a funny world out there right now and i i really have no idea when i'm going to be able to travel overseas next i mean i'd like to think it's next year but We've still got strict restrictions here in Australia, and uh, yeah, it's times are tough. So right now, I'm just in sort of enjoying and living day by day, seeing what the the future holds when they they open the uh, prison cells up, I guess. And if, if that's the case, yeah, I'm obviously keen to to go and do some more flying around the world and compete, and uh, probably not as much as I was, but uh, yeah. There's been talks of me trying to do some paragliding comps. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I'm quite happy with the glider I'm flying right now and I don't see me wanting to to go to more collapsible wings <laughs> than what I'm in right now. But um, <laughs> I think uh, if I did do one, it would certainly be on the glider I'm flying and um, it would, you know, just see how I go against the, the racing guys on on my lower-performing wing. and. Uh, something like that, but uh, that would probably be more of a local thing in Australia, I think, if that happens in the the next six months or so. But, uh, yeah, fortunately a lot of times the hang gliding and paragliding comms clash, so hang gliding's Mm. still got my priority even though people think I'm just a paraglider pilot these days because that's all I've been doing. (laughs) I still still love hang gliding and uh, certainly wouldn't trade it in for paragliding, but... uh, you know they're just uh different gliders in the air doing the same thing and uh, uh i think you know i don't personally i don't know why paragliders don't fly hang gliders you know there's i believe you can learn uh you can learn things from both sports for for the sport that you really like to do and just one thing paragliding's taught me it's it's patience mm-hmm. i thought i had patience when i <laughs> hang gliding but uh, paragliding's taught me that you can actually have a lot more patience than i thought i could ever have so uh yeah it's uh it's been fun
0: johnny wicked man i really appreciate your time and it's nice to see your smile and uh i hope when things free up we get a chance to fly together somewhere i've been looking forward to that for years so maybe via or something but uh Good luck with everything. Yeah. Wow, maybe we'll see each other in
1: Texas of these days. that'd be that'd be cool. Who knows? Maybe but, I'll uh, be on a paraglider in Texas.
0: Yeah, there you go. Yeah, I know Dustin's been eyeing it. You know, he's flying them now too. So he's uh, he's threatening to get down there as well. But good luck with everything. I hope you guys get to travel again soon. And uh, thanks, man. I appreciate it. Thanks for your time.
1: No worries. Thank you.
0: If you find the cloud-based Mayhem valuable, you can support it in a lot of different ways. You can give us a rating on iTunes or Stitcher or however you get your podcast. That goes a long ways and helps spread the word. You can blog about it on your own website or share it on social media. You can talk about it on the way up to launch with your pilot friends. I know a lot of interesting conversations have happened that way. And, of course, you can support us financially. This show does take a lot of time, a lot of editing, a lot of storage and music and all kinds of behind-the-scenes costs. So if you can support us financially, all we've ever asked for is a buck a show. And you can do that through a one-time donation through PayPal, or you can set up a subscription service that charges you for each show that comes out. We put a new show out every two weeks. So, for example, if you did a buck a show, and every two weeks, it'd be about $25 a year. So way cheaper than a magazine subscription, and it makes all of this possible. I do not want to fund this show with advertising or sponsors. We get asked about that Uh, pretty frequently but I for a whole bunch of different reasons which I've said many times on the show I don't want to do that I don't like having that stuff at the front of the show and I also want you to know that these are authentic conversations with real people and these are just our opinions but our opinions are not being skewed by sponsors or advertising dollars I think that's a pretty toxic business model so I hope you dig that um you can support us. If you go to cloudbasedmayhem.com, you can find the places to support. You can do it through patreon.com forward slash cloudbasedmayhem. If you want a recurring subscription, you can also do that directly through the website. Uh, we've tried to make it really easy, and that will give you access to all the bonus material, little video casts that we do and extra little uh, nuggets that we find in conversations that don't make it into the main show, but we feel like you should hear we don't put any of that behind a paywall. If you can't afford to support us, then just let me know and I'll set you up with an account. Of course, that'll be lifetime. And hopefully a, you're being in a position someday to be able to support us. But you'll find all that on the website. Uh, all of you who have supported us or even joined our newsletter or bought cloud-based Mayhem merchandise, t-shirts or hats or anything, you should be all set up. You should have an account and you should be able to access all that bonus material now thank you so much for listening i really appreciate your support and we'll see you on the next show thank you